Can you tell me whom your consultants serve and where? Laurel has really grown and evolved over the years, and that includes the number of people we support and also the different regions we support in. Our services are offered in the Lower Mainland, in Vancouver Island, and in the Okanagan region, and we provide support to children, youth, and adults uh, in all of these regions. I think you might also serve some others. I've heard about this project called Umid. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's definitely a passion project for me. There are pockets of families that we encounter where language is definitely a barrier to accessing resources or navigating services. And we have many cultural groups uh, in the Lower Mainland that are supporting families in navigating these services. And one such group is Umid, which is really focused on uh, Punjabi families. And um, it's a really interesting consortium of professionals. We have MCFD, we have Surrey School District involved, Fraser Health involved, and Possibilities is integrally a part of that as well. So that's really enabled us to have some lunch and learn sessions with families to explain to them what our, what the services are and how they can navigate the different aspects of services within the province. Can you tell us about the role of culture, values and beliefs in the work that you and your consultants do? I think culture, value and beliefs is such an important component of our service because we are very humble that we walk into families' homes to deliver a service and they invite us into their home seeking support for their child. And I think knowing what's important for them, what values drive their family routines, what's the communication, the dynamics within the family is really important because our intervention plans need to be contextually appropriate. So If we know the role of the parent, um, whether it's the mother, the father, the grandmother, or the aunt who's involved in the child's care, it it really helps us design an intervention plan that would result in some meaningful change and also helps us involve the right people as part of our training process. So they they are available and uh, are able to contribute to the plan. I can imagine a situation where a consultant's coming into a home and it's the grandma who's providing primary care rather than the mother or father while they may be away at work. How does a consultant work with that dynamic while trying to teach uh, skills of independence, for example, and the grandparents just want to be kind and loving and supportive and do it all for the kids? I think you're absolutely right. I think in many families that's what a grandparent's role is, and that's what they embody when they they work with uh, their grandchild. One way that we try to navigate that conversation is to really look at the shared purpose or the shared goal. Grandparents, as much as um, they they understand that you know that the parents are going through some challenges with their child, they also have the right intentions of wanting to make sure they do good by their grandchild or grandson or granddaughter. And so, instead of just saying "do it this way." trying to have a conversation with them about why we're doing certain things and trying to get them to think about how these little steps are going to really inform some of the larger goals that the family has for their child and and they themselves may have for their grandchild. It's really important to take the time to build that relationship with the grandparent and to actually um, involve them in the process and celebrate little measures and successes that they contribute to the intervention and the plan. What are the services that your team offers? 
We offer a range of services. I mean, behavior consultants, of course, they do the one-to-one support uh, within family homes with parents, and that's definitely the, the bulk of what we do in all the different regions. But over the years, we have had opportunities to kind of identify service gaps and areas that there's a need where there's no funding or um, there are very limited resources. And that has really helped us look at very specific and specialized training in certain areas. And I can give you a couple of examples. One of them is the Triple P Positive Parenting Program. That's an evidence-based parenting program that's got a preventative lens. Like it is about reaching families with young children uh, before problem behaviors become serious or critical, really trying to get families the tools and knowledge and skills early on so they are on the path to a more successful trajectory with their children's development. Another program we've looked at and we've uh, certified some of our clinicians in is the PEERS program for teens and adults, which is an evidence-based curriculum for social skills training. We all know that behavior is communication, and oftentimes we see children wanting to be part of social settings or wanting to connect with peers or reach out and be part of games or sports that are happening. And sometimes they lack the skills to do that. Many children that we support are not observational learners. They don't watch and learn, and they need very specific teaching methods to teach them social skills. This curriculum provides those very clear evidence-based methods to teach social skills, um, skills to help navigate the social world. Another program that we have identified a gap uh, within our sector is in sexual health education. A lot of the times within school environments, uh, children are not part of the sexual health education, and a little effort is made to bring forward an adapted curriculum for them. Laurel operates an applied behavior analysis, which is an evidence-based treatment methodology. Can you tell us why that's important for families to know? I mean, it's really important for families to know, and I think it's good that you brought up this question because the word evidence-based practice and best practices are often used in discussing programs and services, and it's really important to understand what that really means for families, particularly when there are limited resources and they have so many different choices. What we mean by evidence-based practice is really that strategies and the interventions that we bring to the table has got a robust support from research studies that have spoken to its effectiveness in teaching skills or addressing challenging behaviors um, across different age categories. So when you have that robust scientific evidence supporting a particular intervention, we go into service with credibility and confidence that some of the interventions that we put in place uh, will result in positive outcomes. That's why it's important that we work with evidence-based practice. In today's world, there's a lot of people who talk about different strategies. There are lots of fads and uh, curriculums and products that speak about cure, treatment, or fast fixes. And I think it's really important for families to take a pause and understand what they are getting into. There are different kinds of therapy or education for very young children. How do parents know what's best for their child? ABA, PBS, play therapy. You hear all kinds of different terms. You're absolutely right. 
parents are often very overwhelmed when uh, they get the diagnosis and there's a lot to take in. Uh, there are many therapies. They get information about various services and it, it's not easy for them to navigate these services. And, you know, parents have told us that. And in some families, this is further compounded with other social cultural constraints language constraints. So I do encourage families, uh, if their child has autism, to reach out to Autism Information Services because they do have specialized services and I also believe uh, some of that is offered in different languages. Um, another recommendation I often give parents is to reach out to their social worker so they are able to, you know, have a point of contact to understand what their starting point is and how they can proceed to access services for their child. At Laurel, if a family calls us, we're also very happy to set up an initial meeting with them at no cost to the family. And I think that gives us an opportunity to explain our services. It gives us an opportunity to explain why ABA is what we offer and really highlight the evidence that ABA has to support its efficacy and effectiveness with uh, young children and in skill development across various domains also gives us an opportunity to address any concerns they may have or um, what they may have heard about ABA and dismiss any misconceptions they may have about ABA. So it's really a good opportunity for that initial contact. And oftentimes parents have appreciated that very much. And, uh, and many have continued to stay on with us and seek our service. What happens next? Tell us a little bit about what a consultant would do at the first meeting with the family and how they would start up the program. Once they connect with the family, I think one of our first things is to set up an intake meeting with them to get to know them better, to get to know their child, and to really lay out the expectations of the service so that the parents are very clear on what every month is going to entail, what the therapy is going to entail, and what they need to do on their end. Really, the focus at the time is to look at what is needed to create a team for the child. Behavior interventionists are often part of the team for young children. We don't offer behavior interventionists. Our consultants help the parents uh, in how they can recruit behavior interventionists as part of the team for their child. And, and we also work with families' budget because sometimes families may say they want to allocate some money for a speech and language pathologist or a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist based on the child's diagnosis and support needs. And so we want to accommodate that and work with that. All of these things are the focus of the initial few meetings. And once that is determined, we really dive into doing an assessment, a thorough assessment of the child's skills. Our services for children under six are, as per the province's guidelines, are offered by registered autism service providers. The parents can expect to see, you know, to determine the frequency of contact based on what they're expecting, and we try our best to always be in touch with the families, to review the progress of the child, to coach them so that when sessions are done, they are able to transfer some of that learning into natural settings within their daily routines. Uh, we don't want learning to happen just in a therapy session. We want parents to be integrally part of that. Generalization uh, of skills is a keystone. It's one of the dimensions of ABA that is definitely the ultimate goal of any skill development program is for the child to be able to demonstrate it 
with different people, different settings, and in different environments. Absolutely. What do you do if a child doesn't respond well to the program and they have continual challenging behaviors that are surfacing? That's definitely a moment of pause for us. And I think uh, one of the key features of the work that we do is that it is data-driven. We don't go by how I feel or how you feel in terms of the child's progress. We do want to be able to observe those changes. And if we notice that our programming or plans are not impacting or resulting in any positive change, that's definitely a moment of pause for us to see what needs to be changed, tweaked. And sometimes it is about uh, retraining or uh, making sure that uh, appropriate level of coaching is provided to parents. We don't abandon efforts. We go back to the table to problem solve and see what needs to be changed or what needs to be added potentially to the programming. What about family capacity? Like how long does it take to implement a program? How many hours a week do parents need to be able to commit to make it truly effective? You're right about the family capacity and context and budget constraints and so many other factors that inform the decisions around how much therapy is needed. So we work with the families and see what works best for them. We do also acknowledge that if therapy is provided to young children at very low frequency, where you barely have any hours of work every week, we don't expect or anticipate uh, outcomes to be that robust. We don't go ahead and kind of recommend X number of hours to every family, but we do say minimum of 10 hours is required for us to see some change. And we do our best to train the family and sometimes siblings as well so that they can take the training that's happening in structured settings to natural environments. Is it really complicated training? I can imagine that it might be a little daunting for families to think they need to learn the, the language of, of the scientific language around applied behavior analysis and extinction bursts and other things <laughs> that you start oh, to learn. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, there's just uh, there's so much of technical terms used in ABA, but when we do uh, the work with families, we do not try to use the technical terms. We do our best to keep it simple because a lot of these technical terms can be translated into simple day-to-day language. Say for a, a, a child eats their meal and the parent gives a high five or ruffles the hair and says, well done, you know, eating your food. I can say, that's great that you acknowledge the child and a technical term would be you reinforce the child. So it really <laughs> doesn't matter uh, about using the technical term as long as parents understand what it translates to in terms of uh, actions and what that looks like for a child. A lot of our plans, we actually don't include any technical language in the plans that we uh, develop, both for young children and for school-age children and for adults. We try to keep it simple because I think a plan is only as good as it can be implemented by the people implementing it. You can write the best plan that looks clinically robust, but if it's not understood by the team that's implementing it, it's of no value. Sometimes a diagnosis doesn't come until after the age of six, the school years, uh, when children are facing difficulties. Do you have any advice on how families should get started with services at that point? Because I know the resources for individuals with autism, they shrink dramatically after age six, based on the presumption that the child is getting supported in school. The bulk of the work we do 
um, at Laurel is with school age children. And a lot of the referrals come to us um, through MCFD, which is the Ministry of Child and Family Development. When we get a phone call from a family looking for services, they have two routes that they could take. One of them is connecting with their social workers and outlining the need for service or the reasons for why they need that support right away. And MCFD has their process of prioritizing referrals and then sending it to agencies such as ours that has a global contract with them. So that's one way they can access service. The second way is really connecting with us directly and going the fee-for-service route by using their private funds. And and this could be something that some families can afford, and so they don't want to wait on the wait list and are able to access services. And some families, this may be a challenge, and we recognize that. What recommendations do you have for families who are struggling with support at school? Our goal at Laurel, the way our service is designed, is to really support families. And I know that uh, sometimes they children experience challenging behaviors at schools and families hear about it or families are asked to take their child back home. And so there's definitely this uh, push and pull and tension between the school and families. We do encourage them to talk to the resource teacher at the school and to really voice out their concerns and figure out a way for them to bring these conversations into the individualized education plan meetings, so the IEP meetings that happen sometimes twice or thrice a year. We want them to be empowered to speak their mind and to raise their concerns or to highlight the goals they have for their child in these meetings. Some families may struggle with that because of language issues. And so that's when the advocacy resources do come in handy and we encourage parents to use them. How can parents make the very most of the resources that are in schools, for example, peers, both with and without disabilities? That's definitely an area that we are starting to pay more close attention to now. One of the things that we tried was getting some families with um, youth of similar profiles and interests together in small groups. That was really uh, an eye-opener for us in terms of the value that it brought to both the parents and to the youth. And I think we want to explore that and continue to kind of build on that so that we establish more peer connections that potentially exist at school and may not even exist at school. They may be from different schools, but if they are able to create some of these connections, we'd like to encourage that. And we've seen some of that happen through our virtual peers sessions for youth as well, which has been phenomenal. So sort of picking up on this theme of the school-aged years and IEPs, if you were to choose just two or three goals for a young child in their elementary years, a middle school-aged child, and a high school-aged youth, what would those key things be that are fundamental to their progress, and, and how can ABA help? In the primary ages, we really encourage parents to look at skills that are pivotal, that has a kind of a wide-ranging impact on different areas and domains. Um, things like communication, just a way for the child to communicate, toileting, um, feeding habits, and self-care, some of the basic self-care that's needed. Another area we focus on is sleep hygiene. If the child gets into good sleep habits, it sets up the child for a better day on a regular basis and in a better place to be able to learn other things. In the middle school or the intermediate school, 
and age. Just continuing to build on the strengths of the skills that the child has built in the primary ages is really important to maintain good routines, um, to maintain good self-care, and starting to build some independence of the child in getting involved in their daily activities is really important, whether it is about getting ready for their chores or getting ready to go to an activity, just being able to access the community, able to interact with peers. And as they get older, getting into high school, I think the focus starts to shift about, you know, starting to plan for adulthood. And that's where you're starting to think about what are they interested in, what their passions are, what their skills are, and having a better knowledge of what are some prerequisite skills that are needed if they want to get into employment, for example, and starting to build those skills. And one of them could be transit, using the transit, connecting with people, talking to people, or uh, being able to follow tasks or complete tasks in, in a systematic way, which is potentially a skill that would really serve them well in a job environment. Where do you begin when dealing with a challenging behavior? Like, is there a common place to start to unpack a challenging behavior that families can look towards as a, a process to help them? Because behaviors, they keep coming up. You work on teaching a child new skills to address one challenging behavior, and before you've even finished that, the new one is coming to take its place. What's important to know is that Behavior is a form of communication, and uh, trying to understand what the child is communicate is really at the foundation of some of the work that we do. You know, I, I talk to parents and I'll say, what makes the behavior stop? And sometimes they say, as soon as I go back and sit beside him, he stops crying. And I was like, okay, so it, it's possible that the child is trying to communicate that I want you to come sit beside me, mom. And that's really a simple example. I know there are many complex behaviors that cannot be explained with such simple terminology or sequence. But it's really about understanding why the child is engaging in that behaviors. And the way to understand it is often, when does the behavior stop? What is delivered to the child that makes the behavior stop? And oftentimes, that information, when you unpack, you get a better sense of what the child may be communicating. And that's a really good starting point. And you can test it by replaying that scenario again to say, I'm going to step away from him while he's watching TV and let me see if he cries and I can come back, sit next to him, and it stops again. And if, if that replays a couple of times and you can do it, you, you can most certainly say that he's engaging in the crying behavior to communicate that I want you to sit beside me. 